I say, Jimmy, we dive straight in. Let's dive did straight in. That noise. Did you hear that massive yeah, snore? Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say one thing quickly between us that will make you very happy? I, I was uh, camped in Melbourne last week to run a God's program. So I did like a really intensive four day one. I went into the provider office to go and sort of debrief with their team, I think after day two. And then the, the local manager and another fella turned out they're massive geek boys. And we got really chatting and into one and Marvel, etc. They're big Doctor Who fans. And they said to me, um, so do you watch Doctor Who as well? And I went, ah, you know what? No, I haven't seen it really at all. Not even the Ecclestons. And they were both like, but you're British? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I get the same when I say I don't watch football. It's, yeah, it's weird stuff like that. Um, but there you go. I love it. I, um, with that in mind, you did watch The Caves of Androzani with me once on video with Peter Davidson. That's, that's the one. A, oh, with I, yeah, that's happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I watched all the, I pretty much was avid up until McCoy. I don't even know that I watched the full Paul McCann spin-off. I'm across it enough to know the who's who and could probably do the order at gunpoint. Go on then. Pretty... Oh, God. No, I don't want to. All right, Jambon. Um, all right. Well, so, Sheppy. Well, let's do the welcome. <laughs> you know, God, I'm so out that, of practice. that was probably one of those things on my mind. There's something missing. Oh, yeah, we should probably do the welcome. <laughs> so, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. Uh, we're the What If podcast for uh, alternative sequels, prequels, TV show spin-offs, anything your heart desires. We will uh, produce it. Produce. <laughs> I don't mean produce in a sense. I mean, we'll write some stuff down. We're not going to actually produce it. I would like to. <laughs> I'm looking for funding for uh, Three Men and a Little Lady too. Yeah. Whatever we call it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I believe it was uh, Three Men Driving Me Crazy and it was like banned in a lot of countries. It was, <laughs> it was tricky. It was tricky. Um, Jimmy, you, my friend, uh, were the one who suggested today's uh, film sequel for us to tackle. Uh, it's a film that holds relevance for both of us. It's one of those ones which we did watch together as youths. And it's a film that holds up and I think is regarded well, generally speaking. Yeah. Everyone I think is like, oh, and it's held in high esteem. Um, I think you and I always liked it and we didn't stop ever, you know, it never went away for us. What, Jimmy, for a thousand points, is the name of this week's film? <laughs> the name of this week's film is Dirty Rotten Scoundrel, Sheppy. And it, yeah, very exciting. And I think you're right. There's a bloody theatre production of it now. Did you know? Like they've, I did not And know. I think it's an that's adaption great. of the film, which in itself was a remake of another film, right. wasn't it? But, well, that's to but, talk about yeah. as well. That's, of course. Yeah. But that's exciting about the film. Is it a, did you say a play or is it a musical? Because I, I think it's a, the oh, good question. I don't know if it's a musical. That would be amazing. Can you imagine? <laughs> I will, I'll pay just for the Rupert song. Jesus. <laughs> Oklahoma. Um, so, um, Dirty Roman Scoundrels, 1988, directed by your friend of mine, Frank Oz, starring Mickey Kane, Morris Micklewhite, Stevie Martin, Glenn Headley, and um, Anton Rogers, Ian McDermott. Ian McDermott, therefore, uh, it's Yoda directing Palpatine, which is, which is amazing. 
it's i mean um, you've 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 given me an in to do my directed it was but i'm not going to do it in my own voice anymore but yeah brilliant that's that's awesome (laughs) you can't do the yoda voice anymore it'll get you cancelled it's way over the line it's really inappropriate just have to even doing it in syntax is now sort of a bit iffy you have to be careful well you know it's basically Fozzie voice as well, to be fair. But um, but anyway, um, I, um, which is to absolutely butcher two of my favourite all-time characters of anything, which is really yeah, right. tough. Right, over here, bears <laughs> and woodland um, things. <laughs> so, I mean, I just described Yoda as a woodland foggy thing, so I'm not doing too well. Um, let's now, bring it back uh, out of the dark side. Yes, for God's sake. Yes. So, dirty Golden scoundrels amazing so i would like to see the play or the stage adaptation of yeah. that that's great is that playing in london your guess is as good as mine old buddy i don't know to be honest i don't know post covid i don't know where anything's at i just saw um i i did for reasons that will be revealed i did a really big internet deep dive on this well actually let me reveal them now because uh, i guess in setting the sheppy this is one that i giggled about like I think of all the things to think of a sequel to, this has probably to date been the one I've been most excited about. And then, you know, and genuinely held it, held it, held it, held it. I thought about it maybe week three, you know, and then I held it for ages as a special one, special one. And I was so excited about this. And and then I found it by a million miles, the most challenging uh, to write a sequel for and have gone through several iterations. I think, I, honestly, I spent about, I want to say in thought hours, research hours, at least 10 hours on this pitch. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> drops and stupidity. And it's, wow. when you hear it, I wouldn't even give it a three-star review. <laughs> but I've got some moments I'm happy with. But generally speaking, I'll, I'll tell you a bit more when I get to the pitch, like the, a little bit of the journey went on with it. But but I think, um, but but that means, you know, I, I did do some internet research on it. I just glanced at the fact that it had been a musicals or a, a, a theatre production and, um, and, and got, a, got a couple of interesting little stats on it. But I think we should do our personal um, reflection right. first. But, but yeah, man. This was a this was a fascinating shoulders of giants experiment for me. It makes me very nervous about other ones I'm interested in. You know what I mean? Doing for us because well, sometimes the ones you're most you've said this before, but sometimes the ones you're most excited about are the trickiest ones to to yeah, do. Right. The, the incidentals, like in other friends that we don't really care about, turn out to be right. fun sometimes. You know? Yeah. But, well, if I let me say this, um, it was I mean by nature. 31 Scoundrels is a con film, and con films, by their nature, have to have fairly intricate designs, or at the very least, the appearance of an intricate design. And, you know, of course, a some sort of like, look over here, look over here, ah, you should have been looking over here, type thing. And just so with that in mind, it's like, oh, how much of this do I have to sit down and construct? Am I going to do, like, like, this diamond cobweb sort of fractured structure and really like oh i just don't think i have the energy and i'm like so so can you do this type of film in broad strokes without making it obvious and stuff so i was kind of unmotivated and and we have had a little bit of a gap but honestly i i had the original idea very early on 
I didn't give it any other thought until a couple of days ago. And then I was just like, bah, and did it in this big burst, which um, is not my usual technique at all. But um, yeah, I will say I basically just wrote out my original scribbled notes and then I fleshed it out. And then naturally some of the side characters got fleshed out. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I will say I am bringing, I do bring back Anton Rogers and I do bring back Ian McDermott. But. That's awesome. I'm very happy. Me too, by the way. um, But, um, but I didn't spend, I haven't written anything for them. There were scenes that I would flesh it out with where they're like, you know, together on a double act doing something, just one or two scenes, but then together, um, and that's not in there. And there's a lot of you know, stuff like, like there's, you know, there's a clever twist or they do a clever con. You know, it's just <laughs> lines like that. That's basically, so just, that's just a little forward to get in. But I will say it does have slightly more meat on its bones than I was worried because I had so, such a basic oh, idea and I hadn't given it any other thought, but it has sort of fleshed out naturally as I just sort of wrote it down. Well, I, that's, so that's a that's, wonderful tease, Sheppy. And I, but let me get us back on the agenda because you normally do this, but I am, I think, in a position to say to you, do you remember when we first saw mm. this together? Because I think it was kind of, I remember vivid, well, this is my, I might have it wrong, but my, my recollection is pretty vivid on this one. Um, but do you remember our first encounter? Well, with DRS? okay, let me see. I mean, was it at your place? Was it, it at place? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, was it, it was. in your, in your room? Uh Probably, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. And Were was... we naked? <laughs> um, I think I do remember. Did we rent it out from Village Video? Or... Well, I, I'm going to say, it, I mean, my mum's my husband at the time, Ian, uh, he was uh, a hero for me, you know, introduced me to Ian. Hero to introduced, us all. Yeah, introduced me to Ghostbusters, got us into licence to kill us. Anyway, anyway um, the child <laughs> services will be on the line now. <laughs> but, uh, but he um, he also, one Friday night, I just have this as a really magic, vivid memory, like comes back from the video shop and has brought this movie, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and none of us knew about. And I, I love that time for so many reasons, Shep, the magic around it. There's two specific magic things for me. One, there can exist a st- mega Steve Martin movie that you I knew very little about at the time. You know, got minimal coverage, let's just say, at least at our level and in our sphere. And um, and we, you know, must have been a reasonably new release, whatever. And we we plopped it on and we watched it as a family that Friday night, you know, and it is just a it's so dense and packed with stuff and I went yeah. back and rewatched a few bits and scenes and rewatched the ending I'll tell you about when I come to my pitch a bit and I just but it's so it's a beautifully made movie and it's got so many good gags as we know but anyway roar with laughter love the twist yada yada you come around on Saturday and this is the second thing I love about this sort of thing is you you just got the video, so you rewatch it on Saturday, don't you? Yeah. Know, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. amazing. It's sort of magic like that. I never think really on a streamer to think, well, I've got it right there. I'm going to rewatch it right now with G or yeah. whatever. Like, you know what I mean? I never do that, you know. But I think I mean when for speaking for myself, when I was a kid, I would rewatch stuff like crazy. I think kids, I mean, kids do that. And I so if I rented a film out, I would watch it the evening and then the next morning, and then if I had time again, like after lunch before we returned it um, <laughs> and you don't get uh, you know I didn't get tired of it it didn't get bored at all because I was like oh. 10 
So I guess it's kind of like that. And because it is such a good film. And again, this would have been, what, 89? I mean, the film is 88, so if it was out on video. It's weird that we were just unaware of it, like, like you say, like at the cinema. Because we did have our ear to the ground and stuff. We read flicks. But yeah. I think it did sort of pass us by. And it was randomly. I don't know if it came out at Cranley or Guildford. Must have done. But we just sort of, I guess if the parents didn't think about it and we just sort of missed it. Somewhere I have a film, like, I don't know, Thunderball taped off ITV. And in the adverts, there was like, coming soon on ITV, Steve Martin and Michael Caine in Daniel Scandals. And it's them when he's teaching him how to raise the glass. Yeah, that scene. And, that's, and so that's just really random. Nice. But that's... I but, think I've got so, a similar memory to that, by the way. Right. But I didn't uh, hear about this film either then, so it's very gratifying to me that I came in and I was your sloppy seconds and we went straight in <laughs> and watched Dirty Gordon Scoundrels, which is great, which I'm very happy about. And I do remember um, Elements, but I don't remember it. It's, I don't know. Do you remember certain scenes very clearly? Or, on first yeah, viewing, or I mean, or, I, yeah, I, or, yeah. just generally, Shabby, I think I've seen the film over ten times myself. You know, mm. I really, I, I, I'm, I'm in love with this film. I think it's wonderful. You and I saw it a few times early on. I yeah, guess, I think well. you're right. Yeah, and it became like, and there's so much good Steve Martin in it. So much yes. good Steve Martin, and he, and uh, if you hear Michael Caine being interviewed about it now, he's got such fond memories. He, he cites yeah. it as one of his top five movies that he's ever done, and That's great. the time he had on it was just wonderful. And he said he realised immediately he's just got to play it straight, and then that will be yeah. it. You know, and his favourite scene, he said, is the Doctor Emil Schuffer <laughs> the third with the uh, the whipping of the legs. Yeah. And I think um, the spirit of it's amazing. It's, when you reflect back, I, I want to say there's about 30 barnstormers, you know. When you, you're lucky these days to get three or four good chuckles out of a comedy, you know, it's like some really amazing moments. I, I have a particular favourite amazing moment that I quote and think of probably daily, which I'll come to in a moment. I want to know if you've got one too, Sheppy, so that's a little tease. But, <laughs> I, I, but I just wanted to say, well, look, I just think... Well, I rewatched the ending for my pitch, and I don't know when you last saw it, Sheps, but there's a really lovely moment in it where, um, you know, just before one of our favourite little in gags, which I really pull the thread on, by the way, around the VCR with Ian McDermott, but, you know, yeah. it's the end of the adventure. Steve Martin basically um, comes to... Michael Caine's sitting on the bench looking out over the beautiful French Riviera, and um, Steve Martin puts his bag down, and the two men sit for almost a full minute in silence before ah. Steve Martin says anything and says, okay, that'll be it then. Like, and, like, I think the film has more than earned that. You don't feel it even now re-watching it. Yeah. And, like, you think about the capers they've had to that point, like, yeah. and, and just that moment, it's, it's beautiful. And I just thought, Jesus, I wish Frank Oz had made more, you know. I, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think... He uh, made a lot, but he, he, that was certainly a big peak. He's very, yeah. actually, pretty prolific. Um, mm -hmm. Less so, I guess, these days, but he's, he was getting older. But in the 80s and 90s, he did make a lot. But I would think it's safe to say that Dirty Rotten Scoundrel is my favourite Frank Ross yeah. film. Do you, you have know? a favourite moment? Think, well, favourite moment, I don't. I have, I have lots of favourite moments. I have his hand being glued to the wall. <laughs> um, okay. I like the... Um, the, the bit where the, the music cue and the tennis ball bounces off his head. 
uh, when the, the pop music starts and then they go to the disco. Ear, what a wanker. I mean, all of it. I love all of it. I love all of it. It's a five-star film. And I've been holding back the tears. Um, no, I've been holding back. But I, I, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, in terms of favourite scene, I, I, it's, it's very hard to say. Obviously, It is hard. Right. It, the more you even say that, it's making it even better, even harder. Yeah, no. It's, I don't want you to lose the point all... you were going to say, though, Sheps, before. Like, just, um, you had something else you were going to say, and I think I've just butchered it by asking that question too soon, but... Oh, I don't know. If I could say, I mean, I don't know. In terms of favourite scene, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have a favourite scene, uh, because, like you say, it's so jammed-packed. And also, the main plot of them getting to the bet happens, like, a good halfway in. Because it's all of him like meeting Freddy and then, oh, and of course, Lawrence Jameson. Fucking hell. Talk about favorite scenes. Jesus. And the whole thing. You want a beer? Three beers. Well, I mean, everything. Everything, Jimmy. Everything is, is the favorite scene. And then all of that. And then he gets him arrested. And then Fanny Eubanks ruins it. And then he says, okay, I'll train you. And then it's Ruprecht. And, and, and then it goes wrong, and then he says, you know, he'll leave by himself, and all of that, and all of it. And then they meet Glenn Headley. And it's like, it's like two films. It's like two seasons. And it's a tight, dense, packed film. It's a perfect film. It's so funny, because when I'm thinking of my favourite Steve Martin films, and anyone asks me, I always immediately think of, for example, Man with Two Brains, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you know, Three Amigos, and then I start thinking of L.A. Story. And, and then I think, oh, wait, Dirty Wrong Scoundrels. Dirty Wrong Scoundrels is like my joint favourite Steve Martin film. I don't know what with, but it's, you know, <laughs> it's in amazing. the top one. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, um, but for some reason, and I think it's because of Michael Caine. And to speak to what you were saying and to what Michael Caine was saying, is like, I just played it straight. He, Of course he did, um, you know, but... I think because he's in it, first of all, I always think of it more as a Michael Caine film than a Steve Martin, even though it is 50-50. You do, you are introduced to, to everything through Michael Caine. So maybe there's like half a percent where you're, and you meet Freddy through Michael Caine and everything. So there yeah. is that. But, you know, and, um, but I don't know. First of all, Sorry for Breaking Your VHS Coleman line is brilliant. I want to also mention before I forget, um, we said that a lot. And yeah, and then the oh shut up, Ian McDermott. That's genius. Uh, yes. Um, sorry, I broke your VHS, Coleman. You send me the name and the serial number, and I'll send you a check as soon as I get settled. Oh shut up, brilliant. So it's worth just saying that because that's amazing. It speaks to um, so much more that happened on his stay there, doesn't it? In a beautiful way. I love it. <laughs> yes. And one more thing about Kane's performance, um, the whole thing is amazing. He doesn't try to out-funny Martin, um, obvs, as you, there's no way you can. It's like when he's playing against the Muppets, he goes the other way and he goes deep. Um, he doesn't try and go big, it's perfect. Um, it's unlike Tommy Lee Jones correctly playing it uber straight and deadpan in Men in Black, but actually Kane does play it with comedy, he just plays it in his own style and doesn't try and compete for size with Martin, who, of course, has the flashier role anyway. But actually, 
he, he gives this really subtle, really rich comedic performance that's Kane. And by the way, Dr. Emil Schusthausen, he, that's a larger performance, but it's still understated. And the leg swiping scene where, you know, Martin is obviously amazing. And Kane is astonishing. You know, just the, the third is amazing. And the favorite, the, you know what, Jimmy? I have an answer for you. Just the moment with the line is said in the film, we all love you, Freddie. That's one of the best moments in cinema. Uh, so that's <laughs> when he's done the, the walk to the bed. I, and then I the door to, yeah. It's amazing. And I love you. Yeah, and you don't see him. So, in fact, I think you, you, if you're looking, it's like hereditary. You can see him in the darkness, <laughs> but you don't. I, I might be imagining that. But yeah, we all love you, Freddie. That's absolutely astonishing. I just so, got a shiver. <laughs> so those, those are all pretty good points. And, and so a special shout out to Michael Caine for not just playing it straight. I think it's worth saying. Um, I've got a feeling, Sheppy, that Dirty Roll Scoundrels has a very strong <coughs> argument to be in the, in the conversation for top 10 movies of all time for me personally. It's big. Like, yeah, I it's mean, really, you know, I, I really screwed up with this forget. one, man. Because I'm trampling, we're trampling on a masterpiece, and it's imp- it's oh, an impossible please. task. It, well, that's it. it. No, that's okay. It is an impossible task. We'll just we'll just jump in. It's fine. We'll splash <laughs> around. It will be the shit straight to VHS. We'll be the Vegas vacation. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, it's all right. Frank Oz ain't gonna sue nobody. He's still getting residuals. Um, I wanted to say something else, by the way. Um, the story of when they were making the film and. They were filming it right next door, like to, to Roger Moore. So yeah. Michael Caine, who of course is old friends with Moore, they're just staying next door in different like mansion villas. And then they're meeting up every night for supper when they're making dinner with cameras. And sometimes Steve Martin turns up and, and joins them. Fly on a wall. Oh my fucking God. Even if it's boring, like what the soup is extra spicy to that. Even that <laughs> and Steve Martin just be like, mm, that looks like, yes, yes, a little spicy. That's all I need. That's all I crave. Ah, oh, just knowing that that happened at least once, but maybe many times. Uh, yeah, maybe Frank Oz really turned happened. up sometime. And he said, I remember when I was on the Muppets and I told Kermit to go fuck himself. And Frank Oz doesn't <laughs> know where to look. Ah, oh, genius. <laughs> Oh, I love it. No, no, big fan. So that's that's it. Oh, and also, you mentioned the stage production. Um, but you also touched upon the original. It was years before I knew there was a film with David Niven and Marlon Brando. Yeah, that's have you ever insane. seen it? insane. No, have no, you? No, me neither. No, no, no. no. Hang on, I wrote it? it down somewhere. I've got it. Fucking hell. Uh, Bedtime I Story, read... it's called, Sheppy. Bedtime Story, yeah. I read David Niven's autobiography. He didn't even mention this fucker. So... I, I feel betrayed on every level. I couldn't believe that Marlon Brando and David Niven, A, have been in the film together. And secondly, it's what Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is based on. And I still haven't seen it. it I don't know. Like the original Brewster's Millions. Do I really want to watch it? Uh, bedtime Story. I mean, that doesn't fill me with confidence. Do you no. know anything else? No. 64, okay. I think it was 64. made. Yeah. All right. Well, very interesting. <laughs> Maybe sometime, just as a curio, have to watch it. But By the way, when you think about it like that, it's only like 20 years before they're remaking it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's the weird thing. It feels like in the long, long past, but at the moment the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is made, it's basically equivalent of something from the noughties being remade yeah, right now. that's ridiculous. I know, it's so weird. I mean, Time's fucked. 
Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's ridiculous. Timey uh, wimey, stinky <laughs> melanky. Um, oh, let me let me say this. Um, you've seen. I forgot that there was a remake. Um, another remake. Oh yeah, Hustle Hathaway or something. And, yeah. Mm. Did you watch it? Yeah, it's awful. You see, I love that. It's like Hustle or something. Did you watch it? Yes, <laughs> I can confirm to the jury. The real shame. I mean, I like her, the um, the Aussie lady. Right? Oh, right. God. What's that? Rebel Wilson. Right. I really like her. She's very funny, but she's not funny in that, unfortunately. That's a shame. But fair enough. You gave it a go. Um, I have not seen it, but I, that's, that's funny. I'm happy. Um, I'm happy if they do at least another remake in our lifetime, Sheppy. It's a caper yeah. that deserves it. It's good enough, but it's never going to... It's gonna... not going to touch no, this film. No, you know? no agree. It's like the Philip Kaufman Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was the first remake. And mm. then they made a whole bunch every decade or so. Yeah, do it, fine, whatever. There's, there's, Just don't, what, you know. What you've touched on with Kane is really important, isn't it? It's like that people, they're really on wearing the character's shoes and there's a nuance to the performance, which is lovely, really lovely. Yes. And uh, yeah, I want it to It's very warm. And their, their genuine friendship and their natural mm. chemistry. And sometimes you can have chemistry a lot of the time on the screen with someone and you don't get on in real life. It's cold fish. But in this case, there's a genuine friendship. And rule of thumb is, if everyone's having a really good time making a film, the end product probably isn't going to be that great. But you go, okay... But in this case, they are obviously having a great time and it is a really great film. So yeah. that's, that, that works for me. Um, one other thing, Steve Martin, I'm sure we talked about this before, he had an idea around, I'm going to say the early 2000s, he had an idea for a sequel to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, and he said, it's never going to happen now. This was an interview from like a year or three ago. He says, this film's never going to happen now, so I can ruin the ending. So shall I ruin the ending to you yeah. now? To what Steve Martin, the plot was going to be set, you know, <coughs> like 2002 or whatever. Steve Martin, as Freddy, takes uh, someone, presumably a young lady, under his wing and teaches her, you know, how to, you know, and he does the Michael Caine to her and everything, and then some big elaborate plot and blah, blah, blah happens. And then, and then the big twist at the end is that she, all the time, was working for the big mastermind, and it's Michael Caine. It's oh, nice. And he comes out and he's like, I don't believe it! And so it's like a Caine cameo at the end. <laughs> um, and he was like the Machiavellian genius by everything. And nice. so, so that would have been lovely. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's a, a good shame idea. that didn't happen. Yeah, I would have watched You've got that. another We All Love You Freddy type moment for Michael Caine at the end with the reveal yes. there. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, when the penny drops. Um, I'm a big fan. So I'll tell you something else, Jimmy. We did a soundtrack um pod you and i a little while ago and in that we were talking about you know soundtracks and themes and i said at the time of course we both said there were going to be millions that we forget about and then wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go oh god um more than that so the dirty rotten scoundrels theme is one of those and the music from that film is so great and so indelibly part of it but also i also mentioned on, on that soundtrack pod that every now and again, the shuffle in my brain will produce out of nowhere a few random songs, like the theme to Crawl is a big one, for example, that will just start playing. And another one, 
all someone has to do is say Lawrence or anything even more unconnected and the theme will kick in in my brain and then be there for the rest of the day. I'm always very happy about that. So I really wanted to mention the music in this film, like the writing, the acting, the directing, the editing, it's perfect. And it all comes together and helps, of course, create this perfect, perfect film. So there's that. Just before we do for the pictures, Sheppy, three quick agenda items for me. One for the record, my favourite moment is the three. Do you want a beer? Three beers. Like, two, <laughs> when he comes the lady out of the meal. Two beers. Do you want a beer? Three beers. Like, to yeah, have that you. turn is amazing. Like, just that one yeah. line is genius. Who's going to have a chaser on her dime is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then uh, I wanted to touch quickly on marketing for the movie because I thought it was quite interesting. Two quick, two quick sub points on that, man. Like, did you see the link I sent you yet? Have you had a chance to look at the trailer? No. Well, no I'm going to no. ruin it slightly for you now, just for the record for the pod. It's only a small thing, but it was just fascinating when I was doing my um, little dive into the internet that they were shooting. Frank Oz didn't believe that he had enough footage for the trailer that the whoever it was, you know, the production company wanted. And so he basically just filmed a short skit with Martin and Michael came walking around the Riviera and at the end of the skit, Martin just pull, pushes a little old lady into the water, <laughs> really nonchalantly. And they put it at the end of the trailer. And I was like, that's like new Dirty Rotten Scoundrels footage. That's awesome. It's so exciting and happy. So um, did, watch it for that curio, Sheppy. It's just cute. Yes. So they just did that as a little teaser and put that out there. You would be it. gutted if you're so looking forward to that and you go to the film specifically to watch that scene. Yeah. And then it's not in and you're like, I've been robbed by all. Um, yeah, no, fair play. That is great. Maybe um, I saw that a long time ago, but that, no, yes, I yeah. totally forgot to watch it for this. That's great. And then the other thing I just wanted to say quick, on that, just quickly, is an interesting thing, I, and I wonder what your opinion on it. But if you now look at the cover for it, it's one of those ones where I think the cover's actually, it's definitely not as good as it was. Like Planes Trains has done this and made it more cartoony and stuff for the, the oh. two characters on the front. But for the Dirty Run Scoundrels one now, you've got the two boys, because it used, it was the two of them fully slicked up, wasn't it? Like with their their, their martinis, whatever, raised or, their, you know, and then, um, but the new one has got them, uh, the two of them, and then it's got Glenn Headley as well. And she's kind of got her leg cocked or something. She's looking a bit scoundrelly too, you know. Uh, and you're like, well, that kind of ruins the play. Yeah. Like, you know, if you think it's about the two men, and given she only comes in halfway through, I see what they're trying to do. And it's nice to represent the fact she's brilliant in the movie. But bottom line is, yeah, it's better be with kind just of the looking over words. the top of her sunglasses being like, what? But you're right. <laughs> I've always resented Mary Steenberg popping up on the Back to the Future 3 poster behind Doc. So I'm, I'm on your side there. But then I don't even like Joe Pesci mechanically popping up in Lethal Weapon 3. So I, I have a big problem with uh, you know, like, people with No one likes that. Joe Pesci doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and listen, man, I've got some really interesting casting curios for you um he said uh, so for um for for michael kane's part john cleese apparently was offered the role first john wow. cleese interesting right um yeah, he, I mean, I uh, he was doing publicity for something else and michael palin also read for it as well so it wasn't just um the python is also richard dreyfus and matthew broderick were also in the running to be lawrence how about that wow i can't see Roderick in 88 playing Lawrence Jameson. 
Yeah, I think you just need to absolutely do different energy to Steve like you've been talking about. And I just don't know that any... You have to be older, surely. Yeah, it's Dreyfus, be a... I, I think, would be interesting, but wouldn't quite do it. I don't know anyone. Anyway. I can only see Cleese out of any of those. I could see him yeah. doing it. Maybe I'm being too narrow-minded because I say, well, it's got to be an older guy because it's Kane. But that is the basis of their relationship, the mentor. If it was someone of the same age, it's totally different. Or if it's someone who's like 30 and then the person's like 20. That, that, yeah. ugh, I don't yeah. want that. That's um, Roger Dodger. So, so yeah, please. I mean, 10 years later, I would be interested in what you could do. But honestly, yeah. Not that yeah. interesting. Who else did you say? Um, well, the other one I wanted to give... Oh, I also said Dreyfus and Broderick as well, were the other two. Well, well Broderick is crazy in 80 Yeah, it is crazy. That's yeah. only two years after Ferris. <laughs> that makes no sense. Um, you must, that must have been Steve a Dreyfus-Broderick combo. I reckon, you know what, Sheppy, that must be Dreyfus-Broderick as the two, maybe. Um, well, in that case, Broderick would have to play Freddy, not Lawrence. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. And then yeah. Dreyfus is the Lawrence. But then the yeah. other one that I'm really excited about and would love to see in an alternate universe is Eddie Murphy, apparently. It was going to be an Eddie Murphy vehicle as the Freddy character, which would be quite fun, I think. Um, it depends. I wonder what his energy would be like. With any of those people you just said, I can't see it working. And um, again, Cleese, Cleese and Murphy, Jesus, I would watch that. That would be amazing. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. I will go into the Jerry O'Connor mobile and I will go over and I will watch the Dirty Run of Scoundrels starring Eddie Murphy and John Cleese. That sounds great. And you'd probably but, have to bring Denim Elliott in as uh, Arthur, like to get some trading places juice. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want... To. I mean, then you have it directed by Landis and then it just becomes that. But I would rather actually keep it pure. So, no, no, we, we, we won't do that. Let's, let's keep McDermott. Or Charles Dance, bring in, you know, the Golden Child troop. Either way, <laughs> uh, that's great. That's very interesting. Was anyone else? Was that it? No, that's my only castings. But that's can good. I just say a quickie as well? Which I should have remembered to say this during the Kane uh, stuff we're talking about. But he had, he, he, and it's an interesting point against your thing around it shouldn't work if it's uh, if people are having a good time. This is something that Michael Kane said about the movie. I'm just going to read you the quote. Right. So when Michael Kane was asked what the most important lesson he learned in making movies over the decades, he had in Scoundrels. He had Date Your Own Scoundrels in mind. He said, if you're doing a comedy and the crew laughs, it's not funny. I did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin. The crew never laughed once at anything. It's the funniest film I ever made. That's really cool, isn't it? So the crew just aren't laughing. And like, but then you just know you're onto something. Yeah. That's, that's weird. I don't know. I mean, is there a scientific reason for that? Are we trusting Michael Kane? Because I love that man, but he's a bit of an idiot. <laughs> but I, right? I don't know, though, Sheppy. I think there's something around the free son of energy in the room or in the moment and try this, do this bit of ad-libbing, do that, yada, yada. And it's great in the energy and context of the room and it works and it's funny. You try and print that. I don't know. Like I, 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 I think it came because... onto something there. Maybe it's because they're not performing to the camera, they're performing the scene to each other, and because yeah, it's a nice. film. Um, and maybe that's pretentious and maybe that's hogwash, but that could be it. They're not projecting to the camera crew, they're doing the scene uh, truthfully. 
Nice. Which is nice. Uh, I'm going to stick with that and uh, swallow my own face. Shall we jump <laughs> straight pitch, into pitch, it? Let's pitch. let's pitch. You are first up, I believe, uh, I to fair. pitch. There's a baseball joke in there somewhere, but I don't know this sport. That's the one with the pins, right? <laughs> Something like that. Um, I, Sheppy, well, I'll go straight in then, my friend, straight oh, in. So, I mean, as I said to you, I realised reason well actually not soon enough it's almost unsequelable i would have almost cancelled it i think honestly rather put myself through this trauma um, and <laughs> done another movie and, and crowbarred in a different suggestion at the end of the last pod but i just feel like you know they've done the twist there's too good a boat it's so dense with misadventures that first one this is an impossible gig to follow but let's just leave it there and in in my um prep for the sheppy i went off on one i'm going to give you just a tiny bit of where i went um as a as a sort of a uh, before and then and then I kind of really lost my mind and thought no that's really shit (laughs) Uh, but I'll I'll do that first and then I'll get into my proper day run scandal it's the what if of the what if yeah it really is it's the what if that never quite happened I'm I'm loving it (laughs) I haven't actually even read this for about two weeks so because I just I, I got really angry with it so I'll just read it out and then see whether it makes sense so this is not the pitch this is just the quick sidebar yeah. so and um, so we've got a classy opening credits doesn't start with a sting operation or anything we're just following um what we assume to be maybe Lawrence Jameson's car out of his um Beaumont Summer complex uh, into the airport Lawrence is um sitting on a plane in first class but we don't see him we just see his hand a gesture he, he seems to be reading a Sotheby's catalogue, which has on the cover, and I didn't even come up with the MacGuffin, but, you know, let's just assume it's this little egg out of octopusy or something. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. I was going to say, I was, I was this close. Um, but then the plane lands in London, um, and, an, and a character at the airport with one of those airport cards is asking for Professor Peugeot. Professor, I put Peugeot again, not much thought was done here. But, you know, Professor Peugeot. And, um, and then we reveal Kane proper, and his hair and moustache is dyed jet black and he's wearing a monocle you know he's in disguise essentially yeah of course he is <laughs> that he's driven to Sotheby's where there's great fanfare at his arrival um and you know the massive poster of our Fabergé egg on the building um and Kane walks in they're auctioning off bits and pieces and it's um ladies and gentlemen if you'll excuse us the um the the Fabergé egg is arriving now for tomorrow's auction and then the the, the security detail around the egg walks in and Steve Martin um is dressed as a security guard taking it very seriously and like just putting it down like and and then um, and then basically I just could see very clearly um Andre Anton Rogers' character giving a very knowing look across to Michael Caine as a sort of a what's all this about then Freddie's back you know what I mean and um and then I I just stopped there, Sheppy. I thought, no, hang on. We're getting into Ocean's Eleven territory here. It's just, it's not quite the caper I want to write. And right. and I, I'm not sure that they wouldn't still be together. Anyway, I overthought, overthought. Like, that's just paused now forever in that moment. I then, like, honestly, racked my brains for ages, went back to the source material, and then decided, you know what? You know what, actually, why don't we do one where we just literally pick up where that film left off, you know, maybe all the answers are in there, you know? And, um, and so I went down that road instead. I will just say spoiler alert, having feared the oceans 11 style caper, 
I really do kind of come up with a bit of an ocean celebrity stuff. Brilliant. But that's all right, never mind. Um, so, <laughs> so this Sheppy is um, something I don't do very often. I normally put a little two on the end, but this is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, colon, Fool Me Twice. Oh. Directed by Frank Oz. And um, it's I've gone 1993, so just post-house sitter, so we're all happy. We've got Steve Beck as Freddie Benson, Michael Caine as Lawrence Jameson, Glenn Headley as Janet Colgate, if that's even her name, but you know what I mean. Wow, and yeah, then, right. And then Anton Rogers as Inspector Andre, Ian as Arthur. So those two have got bigger characters in this, Sheppy, you might be right. pleased to know. And then yes. we've got one... Um, uh, well, we've got Louis Zorek, who plays Nikos, the Greek millionaire. So I don't know if you remember at the end of the, the first one, that little... Yes, um, yes. Nikos, G'day, Nikos. Get out of the UK. <laughs> Chips O'Toole, Mr. Australia. And then uh, Randy Bankwood is who Steve was playing at the end, the mute, uh, you know, right. number two. Um, and then my only bit of extra casting that I bothered to go with is John Stamos, who at the time is in Full House and stuff as another Greek uh, character called Yorgos. Um, and I've even given him a surname of Palianthropos, which is just villain in Greek, but that's just silly. That's but, yeah, so his, name, his name is Yorgos anyway. So John Stamos is in. He's the extra cast member. I love it. Um, so... Uh, when she's talking, you know, you're through the just to anchor the listeners in Sheppy, who won't be as geeky or dirty rotten scoundrels as us, at the end of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, we have um, you know, that they've been betrayed by Janet, who turns up with a whole troop of um guests, including Nikos, uh, who's interested in Greek property for some reason, and um and and has a moment to tell uh Steve Martin and Michael Kane that you know, of the three million she made in the last year, their 50k was the most fun before escorting them in as Chips O'Toole and Randy Bankwood for some kind of grift that's going to happen inside Michael Caine's estate with this group of characters. So what I thought then, Sheppy, was like the opening shot here could be over the ocean. You know, your little Dirty Rotten Scoundrels colon Fool Me Twice comes in over the ocean with you directed by Frank Oz and we join Janet's boats with the group. So we're going to come into the final scene from another angle and um and basically we see her like schmoozing the people that then do arrive at Lawrence Jameson's pad in the South France later especially Nikos Nikos the millionaire very keen to expand his property empire they land at the island and we just see the scene from the end of the um, first movie in reverse um and then um and then we are inside Michael in uh, I'm gonna go as I always do Michael Caine Lawrence Jameson are probably going to alternate as will Freddie and Steve Martin yeah, but anyway and yeah. um, so we're we're inside the complex and we get a moment again where Steve Martin as Randy is about to break cover and speak and um, Janet stops him again maybe holding his lips together this time instead of him Ooh. speaking something stupid I, I like all Martin's physical comedy in this but I can Ooh. see her pincering his like lips Daffy like, Duck like massive bill <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh I thought you speak right now Andy yeah, yeah, exactly. So we just got some nice, like, grifting tomfoolery, whatever, with Kane and Martin, some conning going on here and there, like, just silliness. Um, and then um, all ending up within this first sort of few minutes of um, uh, Freddie finding himself on one of uh, Lawrence's luxurious balconies with Nikos. And Nikos is kind of looking out the view, just saying, this, ah, this, you know, and Martin obviously can't reply as he's pretending to be mute. 
Um, and then we have uh, Arthur Ian McDermott arriving with something on a skewer, you know, some kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, thing and uh, leaving again with a look of disdain for uh, Freddie, who's still mm-hmm. staying at the complex now, obviously. Um, Nichols takes the skewer, eats whatever is on it, and then immediately, of course, gets it stuck in his throat. And we get some epic Martin physical, all of me style comedy where he can't shout for help because he's pretending to be mute <laughs> and um, attempts and fails at Heimlich maneuver, starts to run for the main gathering, checks himself, gallops back, tries, runs again, goes into the area and starts having to do sort of some kind of human lassie to try and communicate with Kane and, and Janet, you know, to tell them that, you know, Nikos is, uh, is a goner, but it's too Fine, late. Nikos is a goner. Nikos is, oh, no. and, uh, and it turns out that Nikos was actually working and 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 looking for the property for a big time Greek gangster, and um, and Janet, Andre, Arthur, and Kane and are uh, Martin are all deliberating what to do. They're in one of those little. Uh, they have some really cool little secret rooms where they're counting out their cash and stuff, don't they? In uh, in Dead or Scoundrel. So anyway, they're in one of those rooms, and Janet gets a call on what must be like an industrial kind of mobile phone. You know, I sort of imagine her in one of those, like, you know, with a big area, almost like something she'd have had on the boat to go get help. Yes. Anyway, she gets a phone call and um, and then maybe <laughs> perhaps during the meeting, I've put Martin can be a bit distracted. Um, I mean, he never takes all the stuff seriously, really too much anyway, but yeah. maybe he's um, he's fiddling with the VCR that he's broken now that he's staying. You know what I mean? He's got a little <laughs> screwdriver and he's doing it. And, um, and Arthur um, like hands him a tape very slowly and reluctantly. And it's like the sound of music or something like that. <laughs> and, and like he hands it retract like gives it to martin and then they have a little and then martin takes it and he gives him full reassuring you know steve scrunchy face you know and, um, and, then, uh, and then the tape goes in and immediately you just hear it munch <laughs> anyway it turns out nikos was one of the baddest men in athens um janet's call that she took was from yorgos he wants to know who this randy banquet is who's killed his man and he's flying out to france to meet them and, uh, and Martin's like, Steve Martin's like, well, I've got to go. I've got to get out of here like that. And then basically Andre, in a rare moment of steel from Anton Rogers, kind of pulls out a gun and says, like, we cannot let you do this. And, uh, and he's like, Andre, come on, after everything we've been through. And anyway, Janet convinces them all there's a play here. If they convince you, August, they're, they're kind of gangster enough. There's a chance they may be able to combine their empires and make a fortune, you know. And Martin's like, well, empires, empires, what have we got anyway? Yorgis flies out. They meet at Kane's estate. Kane is kind of sat down leading the meeting with Yorgis. And, um, and Martin is pretending to ask, scowl and act hard the whole time in the background, you know, but not pulling it off very well. Um, there's there's kind of chemistry between Yorgis and Janet as well. You know, I mean, it's freaking John Stamos. He'd have chemistry with the bloody chair, wouldn't he? But, um, and then, um, so anyway, the upshot of this meeting is Stamos says he thinks they can all do business together, but there's a condition and he places a gun on the table for Kane. We must make it, make it right with, uh, over Nikos and what happened. Kane looks at the gun and then back at Steve, I put Steve, Freddie, Randy, um, and Steve's eyes sort of saucer and he's suddenly sort of terrified. And, um, but in a sort of a mute way like that. And then, uh, and then basically um, Kane takes the gun, shoots Freddie and there's a bit of blood and everything, which, you know, probably changes the game too much for a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels movie, but a tiny bit of blood shoots Freddy. And um, 
And then Kane and Jorgis exit that scene and start walking through the beautiful gardens, you know, maybe even walk down the steps where the wheelchair was bouncing. Another amazing scene with Daniel Scandals, by the way, mm. when he pretends to throw himself down the step. Um, just even the way in the original Sheffield, the way he's like doing the wheel and looking back. Can I say, because I'm going to forget, when he's at the top of those stairs in the wheelchair and um, Lawrence has to go because there's like, I don't want a satellite TV. And he's distracted by the, the, the dish being delivered. And he points, Steve Martin, I don't know if this is going to come across on a podcast, but he points at, Mar, at where, you know, towards where Michael Caine is retreating. And he goes, and like points his finger up in a kind of a gun, sort of like, and I do that probably three times a week and have done since like the early 90s. I'll, something will happen and someone will meet their comeuppance or something. And I'll go, um, so that's something that the film has uh, nice. contributed to my life. <laughs> oh, and by the way, in terms of being shot, I see like a tasteful Temple of Doom, David Yip, you know, slow, yes. you know, you know, one of those. Nice, Sheppy. Very uh, tasteful. We'll still get PG-13 out of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, PG straight, I reckon. <laughs> um, anyway, then while uh, Jorgis and Kane are walking through these gardens and what have you, or down to the beach, um, we cut, no no, no faffing around here, we cut to, to Martin and Arthur in the pantry and Martin's like, blanks really sting, you know, and all this sort of stuff. We're not blank, you know, he's got his little vest on or whatever. You know, Squib. And, yeah, and we get a second like, oh, do shut up, like that, you know, and Arthur yeah. um, sets him up in a little room in secret with a bed and a television and a brand new VCR with a don't touch it sort of thing. You know, and um, so I mean, I think that's my last VCR gag, which is only for you and me, really. <laughs> um, and then, um, so Kane and Yorgis agreed to do a deal, and Yorgis asks Kane for a show of faith to come in on the next gig. He's going to need a million US dollars as investment. And um, Kane's like, you know, with all due respect, I've just killed my best, best man. Oh, you think I'd have a better Aussie accent by now, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I've just killed my best man. And then um, and he's sort of asking, what do you bring to the table? And like Janet kind of smooths the tensions. And bottom line is Kane agrees we're going to stump up the money, the million dollars. So there's a little head scratching scene where Andre and co, they're all debating which apartment they might need to sell off. And like, I kind of, I do feel like the Jameson thing is very rich. Do you know what I mean? That it's so lived in that world, isn't it? And like, they've kind yeah. of got all these affairs going on anyway. But um, so Janet offers to come in with him and Martin also offers to stump up what amount to his life savings too. So they're all going a third in here. And um, so anyway, Whatever it is that you're, this is one of my throwaways, Sheppy. Whatever it is, the gig, this, the thing that's actually happening behind the, the scene, they're not really involved in it. They're just stumping up the cash for it. Yorgis basically um, essentially betrays them and they never get the cash for it. So their whole ruse has been for nothing. Um, this is all kind of an off-camera thing because Yorgis has obviously left, gone back to Greece after that last scene. Um, and now the now the film sort of turns a bit and it becomes a bit of a, well, we've got to get Yorgi, Yorgis uh, ocean style um, you know, kind of a revenge-like plot here. Um, and Janet knows that he has a son who's called Elias. I haven't cast him or anything. He's just a young kid um, that's attending school in America. And Janet's idea for the team is to kidnap the kid and hold him for ransom. And both the boys are like pretty shaky about this. It feels like they're crossing a line. And Janet's like, no, no, we can, we can bring him here. We won't harm him. Look at this place. You know, it'd be absolutely fine. And... Um, and Andre sort of suggests, you know, the inspector, he can probably pull a few strings, get the kid a French passport. And um, and then so, you know, it, it's not the cleanest plot line, this Sheppy, but the bottom line is 
um, you know, they then get a sort of, well, okay, okay, if we're going to do it, they're reconciled. How do we get to them? And Kane smiles, I have an idea. And Martin's like, oh, no, 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 no. So anyway, they go to New York. Lots of opportunity for some little small hustles here, you know, with a kind of a, I always wanted to do this with this as well, Sheppy, kind of the chance for Freddie to be saying to Lawrence, you're in my town now sort of thing, you know. And, um, but anyway, uh, I haven't even done any thought on that. There's just a couple of opportunities for moments as they're settling into the city. Um, and then we cut to Kane in front of the school head and, um, and there, you know, and he's saying, look, we, thank you for having him here. He's a very special boy. We've obviously had to keep him back a few years, but he should be ready to re-enter school. And then, of course, class, I'd like you to meet <laughs> Ruprecht this time today. I want you all to make him feel welcome. And Ruprecht's in the back of the class, hunched over a tiny desk in an ill-fitting suit, sneering at the other kids. <laughs> we have um, a whole scene here where the kids, uh, imagining they're all about eight years old, you know, are being a, a kind of, I, I'll be honest, Sheppy, one of my other ideas that I started with tore up. I really wanted to try and get Martin into being a, a, a um, secret teacher, you know, as part of a con, because I'd love to see Steve Martin, the teacher in a movie. I don't know if we ever saw that really. We saw a bit of it in Parenthood, but I never got to that. So instead, we just got to be as rude as a class. But, but you know, I, 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 anyway, so. Um, yeah. The kids are being asked, you know, uh, what is 34 times two up on the blackboard, you know? And Ruprecht uh, puts his hand up and, uh, you know, a withering hand, as you can imagine. Yes, of sort of says, <laughs> so, yeah, And does a little, excuse me, may I? And he sort of walks over to the teacher and she hands him the chalk. He pretends it's a pulled finger of farts and the kid, mm. kids roar with laughter at that, you know? <laughs> And then um, with his tongue out, he draws on the board. And instead of doing the 34 times two, he puts the multiplication in brackets, adds a plus one to get 69, and then looks at the teacher with really dirty eyes and then starts <laughs> trying to hump her on the desk like he does with the uh, letting. God knows why he's doing this, you know, to a degree. You know, it's like, oh, my God. So from that crazy moment we cut to Kane and Ruprecht outside the principal's office both looking quite dejected <laughs> it's like it's father and son and um, and the teacher is weeping and wailing you know and leaves the school to pieces I mean, this, it, this scene never happens in, in 20s now should be in 2020 <laughs> but um of course, that gives Janet the chance to jump in as a substitute teacher as well. Um, and um, anyway, you know, the kid is in the class. They managed to kidnap him um, on a field trip or something. I haven't really thought that through. And they take him back to France with them. They then send a ransom note um, and, and another. But they're not hearing from Yorgis in response to these ransom notes that they're sending. Um, and then I've just, this is where it starts to go a bit more broader. It should be like, you know, there's scenes where Martin is bonding with the kid, a bit like you were talking about his own pitch, you know, perhaps teaching him some own little rotten scoundrel skills and um, some pranks on Arthur maybe around the complex would be quite fun here, I think. Um, but they're not hearing from Yorgis. And um, Kane says he'll go and see him. And um, and Martin's like, no, that could be dangerous. I'll go with you. But, you know, he thinks Martin's dead as Randy. So Andre elects to go to Greece with Kane. Kane has a meeting with Yorgis, and Yorgis is very pissed off with Kane, and they're sensing that something's a bit off. And um, at the same time, Martin comes um, knocking for the kids for some more daily shenanigans over at the complex. He's not in his room. Um, he knocks for Janet. She's not in her room. It all suddenly looks empty, vacated. He calls for Arthur. We cut back to Kane and Andre um, in Greece meeting with Yorgis. They discover that the reason they didn't get a cut from the deal is that Yorgis never received Kane's million dollars in the first place. 
And um, and Kane's like, well, we wired it. We wired it right here. And, you know, Andre produces the paperwork and August looks at the account and says, this is not my account. And Kane's like a bit perplexed. And he says, but what about your son? Why would you not be concerned about your son? And Yorgos is like, I don't have a son. And uh, yeah. Martin and Arthur find the ransom notes they thought they'd sent to August in Janet's room as they're looking for her, along with another note from Janet. Sorry, boys. Last time, I promise. I just needed some help to get my son back. And then Martin does another of, oh, she's deceitful. She's a wicked. She's a I love that moment when he's in his dressing gown and handcuffs, by the way. Um, and, then, um, and then, you know, Martin is then cut to Martin is sitting on the bench from the end of the first movie overlooking the sea. Kane arrives with Anton. Martin is looking really beaten and dejected. Looks up at Kane when he arrives and says, what are we going to do? And um, and Kane has just got a little twinkle in the eye and just says, Freddie, we're going to get our money back. And then that's the end of the movie. Ready for a oh, day on Scoundrels 3. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I hope in your universe they do make one, even if it's shit. That's amazing. Yes, recast it, have some real you know, Sean William Scott in it that, and Jason Biggs. Yes, and they just do it and it's terrible. Yes, I want to see that number three. That was great, Jimmy. That was wonderful. It was a trauma, Sheppy, is what it was. Even well trying to done. get to that man. I, I, I'm so excited about what you've come up with. But I just, yeah, absolute trauma. Well, yeah. I'm so, I, I, you know, it's one of those ones I would never have um, thought, I don't think. Um, so good, good. Well, like I say, there were, there were big gaps and there's lots of stuff like something clever happens, you know. I, um, I'm a little surprised in this podcast that we do, Jimmy, that I don't come up with more diverse titles. More often than not, it seems right to me just to put a two on it. And so this is, I'm going for pure, the classic, just a two, new, you know, numerical symbol. Um, yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels 2. I don't actually like it when it's part two. Godfather, Back to the Future. I'm sure there are many others. I can't think of any right now, but I know that. But yeah, um, I don't like part two. I just like two. So anyway. I'm with uh, you. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels 2. Yeah. Um, 1992. Um, so I'm going five years later. Although, um, well, no, I'm going four years later, but in the film, it's set five years later. I don't know why, <laughs> but it's 92 felt right to me, but five years for the characters felt right to me. So that's what I've done. Um, it's Frank Oz directing. You've got your Steve Martin, Michael Kane, uh, Glenn Headley, Anton Rogers, Ian McDermott, and that, and I haven't done any research. I know sometimes you've spent in the past weeks and weeks and months and years finding the casting for your like 1985 film. I'm, I've just written with two new female stars, early twenties. So, <laughs> so there you are. I don't know. Maybe it could be like a, a, you know, in an alternative universe, this is Bullock's big break. I don't know. We'll see, we'll see if we can but cast it at the end. Yeah, let's see what yeah, we have to right. get up to. Well, honestly, they're, they're relatively underwritten, I have to say. I've, <laughs> But there's, there's, there's stuff to be filled out with the right actress and the right amount of time to actually write a real part. So, but that, that would happen. <laughs> uh, so it's five years later. 
Lawrence Jameson and Freddie Benson have been living the dream. Uh, with the lady who still calls herself Janet, they have been pulling larger and larger scams all over the world since, you know, in my reckoning, they did the Greek thing and it wasn't the mafia and it was just this big old thing and they made a lot of money and then they did another and another and they're, they're having a great old time and it's just getting bigger and bigger. Um, all over the world, they've been pulling like larger and larger scams, but they've become too successful and therefore noticeable. Uh, and a new threat has emerged uh, that Janet tells them about in the form of an uh, Italian policeman, Detective Inspector Rossi. Um, he's sort of like a legend at this point. He's ri risen through the ranks in 10 years and has made a name for himself as the ultimate scourge of the ruthless who prey on the naive. And his sights are now set on the trio of trash, uh, as he apparently calls them. And Freddie says, I thought we were the trio of terror. And Lawrence is like, where on earth did you hear that? I don't know, my mouth. Um, so that's the general setup. The film starts like a Bond film um, with the previous big adventure wrapping up. So there's like an elaborate um, and crafty and genius con which unfolds. in. It's like at an exclusive gentleman's club somewhere in an ancient house in the Scottish countryside, like in this old manor. It's Skyfall, I've just realised. Uh, we see Jameson, um, and he's playing a character. Um, uh, so I've called him Jameson here. I think that's the only time. It's going to be like you. It's Kane or, or Lawrence. But we see Lawrence Jameson, as played by Michael Kane, and he's playing this vengeful husband whose wife, who is Glenn Headley, has run away with the heir to the Saran rap fortune. Um, and he's like doing this big, you know, we, the film, we come in on this big scene and he's doing this big, he was accusing her in front of this room. It's kind of like the end of an Agatha Christie. And he's making this bit, he's like, you betrayed me. And she's like, I betrayed nothing. And she throws like a glass again and they're both really going for it. And, you know, Kane and Headley playing it big, I've written. Accusations and vases fly, screams and shouts and name-calling of the most inventive order for a PG. The other guests don't know where to look. And then we meet the Saran Wrap King, who has a nice reveal as we witness the return of Ruprecht. So I'm going straight in. I guess it was inevitable, Jimmy, that you and I were going to play the Ruprecht card. Uh, I'm going straight off the bat. <laughs> Let the audience know, here he fucking is. Um, so things become a huge and elaborate farce, which culminates in Lawrence, uh, or the character he's playing, in a fit of jealous rage, he gets out a gun, and, <laughs> and again, Jimbo, I mean, it, there's something going on here between us, uh, he gets out a gun, and he apparently shoots Ruprecht in the face, um, <laughs> and... Um, and he tries, and he's like, then he panics. He's like, oh, my God, you're Glenn Headley. He's like, Janet, like, oh, my God, you killed him. He's like, ah. Oh. And he suddenly goes all that sweaty, wide-eyed, like, you know, like we've seen a million times in Agatha Christie. And he tries to, he's backing away, go, get back, get back to everyone. And he grab, tries to kidnap his wife, but he fails. Uh, but he jumps in the sports car, uh, but he cra and he speeds off, but he crashes into the golf course lake, and the, the car immediately sinks. And Headley runs to the lake shore, and the crowd gathers uh, around her at the sight of this tragedy. And Headley's like, 
but he didn't even like golf. And we cut to like, the bubbles coming up onto the surface of the lake and then nothing. It was like, oh, no. And we dissolve and it's like, you know, some hours or maybe a day later and the three, I'm going to say actually it's just a few hours later and the three meet up in a little log cabin, you know, obviously a prearranged rendezvous point deep into the Scottish countryside. Uh, Freddie emerges from a body bag. Uh, do you have any, uh, and he says, uh, do you have any idea how uncomfortable it is to have a squib under your eye patch? So, yes, I uh, should have mentioned <laughs> So, Rupert had his eye patch. Uh, with Lawrence uh, emerging totally unruffled and not even remotely wet after his splashdown. And he's in his nice suit. And Freddie has had enough of playing the gimp. And he says again, and this is obviously the when one ten thousandth rant he said over the years. He said, that's enough. I'm no longer playing the gimp. I'm not playing the blind. I'm not playing the lame, the deaf, the mute. And uh, Michael Caine uh, pipes up and says, and what about that time? No, no, no. And then Steve Martin continues, and what about that time you had me in a fake coma for those three days in Magaluf? And Lawrence is like, was that fake? I thought you were really sick. And Freddie's like, oh, ha, ha, in that Steve Martin sort of way. <laughs> um, so it's established that all three are very close uh, and the genuine friendship remains between these two. Uh, but uh, we have a quiet moment um, after these like initial you know, festivities um, where um, it's the evening at the cabin and the three have been celebrating yet another successful heist and Lawrence gets Janet alone outside the cabin on the terrace and he brings out a bottle of champagne and two glasses and creates you know, this little romantic setting. Uh, this, we learn, is not the first time he's attempted over the years uh, to, you know, a connection with Janet. But she tells him again, you know, obviously, many times she said now, like, nicely, firmly, that as long as they're working together, they need to keep things professional. And he's just not sure, you know, he's not sure that she's not just hiding behind this reasoning like an excuse but he has deep feelings for her, which I think are evidence in the first film, in fact. Yeah. He really does yeah. have something for her. Um, and and um, he's reaching the limits of his frustration and anger and hurt. And Lawrence says, like, I'm not imagining it, am I? I mean to say, if you're not interested, I know how to take a step backwards. But I don't think I'm wrong. And that you feel something for me the way I do for you. We're entwined, Janet. I really feel like in this world of lies, you and I have our own truth. And uh, he leans in for a kiss. And she says, stopping him, in that case, Lawrence, I need you to answer just one question for me. If we're as close as you say, and we share this truth, one question. Lawrence is like, all right. And she says, what's my real name? And this revelation that, you know, I guess we, you know, he always knew that Janet wasn't her real name, but he, you know, he now really you know, comes home. He has no idea who she really is, or knows anything about her, her history, anything really. And this leads Lawrence to want to leave the group and retire from the game. He's like, I've had enough. Uh, the danger isn't the thing, he says, nor is the likeness of, likeliness of my being caught sooner or later. No, the thing I can't keep doing is living so close to someone who I at once know better, deeper, 
and are on a more profound level as two people could ever know one another. And yet, yes, I don't know your name or where you're from. Or do you know, I'm not even sure if that's your actual accent. You could be Dutch for all I know. And Janet's like, exactly, Lawrence. And he's like, yes, exactly. And Freddie comes out, you know, drunk and happy. And he's like, great news, I found more schnapps. What? And, you know, very totally, of course, inappropriate classic. So Lawrence <laughs> wants out. Um, he's there, they've come as far. And what with this, like, you know, then they find out about this police inspector um, from Italy who's, like, got a real reputation. And Janet tells them all about it. And so it's just, like, an extra reason. So Lawrence wants out. Uh, plus, as close as they legitimately are, Lawrence is tired of Freddie's ego and competitive nature. Plus, he's had enough money to retire very comfortably for for a long time now. And now he feels he's working just to feed his habit, you know, the rush and so forth. So that sooner or later, he thinks his luck, his luck will run out and he doesn't want Freddie's competitive nature to drag him into performing riskier and riskier stunts, especially with this Italian uh, detective inspector having them now on his radar. So um, we learn also that um, Janet, you know, she's been going away during this five years. They haven't been exclusively together. She does disappear often for months at a time. And this sort of, you know, causes this argument. I'm going to say Freddie pipes up. And, you know, he's like, where do you go? And she's like, a lady needs her space. So now Freddie, you know, he, he never wants the party to end, but he knows he'll never be number one if his wagon will always be hitched to these two. So then all of this culminates with him being, you know what, fine, let's break it up, fine. And also Janet is aware of like, the net slowly getting tighter, she says. So, you know, so the, the three all agree for an amiable split. But there's one problem. Lawrence and Freddie still think of themselves as number one. And while they have this competitive nature, they will never really be able to let the other go. So Janet suggests a way to make everyone happy. Lawrence can find a successor, Freddie can find a challenge, and she and they will be off the radar for a while anyway until the heat cools off. So she suggests a bet uh, to settle things, a new bet, uh, one which will also keep them out of the spotlight, uh, away from Rossi's manhunt, and will also give the group um, you know, a chance to sort of like have one more hurrah um, before Lawrence retires gracefully. So they decide on new blood. The bet is for each man to find and sire a fashion and fashion themselves the next generation of con folk. Uh, and also Hedley stipulates that the successor must be female. But if for no other reason, she says, there's too much male to uh, you know, toxic masculinity already in the world. I don't need any more from, you know, you two have, it's enough. Let's get some, you know, enough testosterone. Uh, Anton Rogers is going nuts over there. He sweats from three shirts a day. It's, you know, so, so um, and also that she stipulates neither quote unquote teacher can engage in carnal activities with their student or else will void their chances. And Freddie's like, why is she looking at me when she says that? And Lawrence is like, the term carnal does rather seem to fit. But he's come out. I don't even like bolts. That's a terrible. That's not going to make the final cut. So the bet is placed. Uh, whoever is most successful in creating the best con artist 
uh, with the biggest and best score and end result uh, will be crowned champion forever and will be given, you know, this winner will be given free reign to live and work or live however he wants without ever worrying that the other one will try and move in or pull some con in the future or do anything that's like they're out. The title will be for life. So no matter what happens, the winner is king of the con forever with all the benefits there in yada, yada, yada. And she like, you know, Janet reads it out, like she's written it down. And so they've all agreed on it and they all think like, do something to sign it or something wacky. So Janet will act as impartial judge to ensure fair play and also to ensure that no grander con is being shaped in the background, meaning we, the audience, are shown and told conclusively that there isn't some bigger picture. I don't know how we can get it, but I don't want everyone to be second-guessing and waiting for something because it's not going to happen. So the two contestants chosen by our heroes are absolutely uh, shown to be chosen at random. So we all know right up front that there will be no big twist at the end where the younger cons, you know, it all turns out they were working a larger angle or they already knew each other or they all were work secretly working for Headley all along or the new blood of secret sisters or one of them or the daughters or Headley is pulling the strings. We are shown 100% that this is not where the plot is going because uh, otherwise people must be waiting for it and that is not what happens. So it really is shown like that. We have a montage, therefore, of Freddie and Lawrence finding their science. Uh, Headley makes them pull a random location from a hat, and she has, you know, Inspector Andre and Arthur overseeing all of this. And like I say, these two definitely have a couple of scenes where they have to solve a problem together in this film. And so Freddie heads to Las Vegas, and Lawrence, he pulls Bombay, and they have one month to find a sire. Freddie is delighted. He's like, Bombay, good luck with that. Uh, but as it turns out, in Vegas, he has slower progress than Lawrence in finding a suitable candidate. Then we have like a little section of this film. Uh, they spend time in casinos, gambling dens, extravagant hotels, rancid dumps, looking for the diamond in the rough. You know, we, they meet different people and some don't, you know, they all don't work out. And it's funny, I see even with that, it's just playing over it and stuff. Um, Do they go together, Sheppy? Is it no, two no, going they to Bombay, don't. two They to split to find. Yeah. And so they each have to find a single sire from their respective locations and teach them to be the best con person. And whoever's sire does create the biggest, best con, that's the winner. And then the person who fashioned them will be the king, essentially. Um, so those, so they split for this sequence, um, and <clears throat> and they find, and so after montages of failed potential candidates and so forth, um, they witness people pulling you know low key scams, and therefore, and then at the end of this little thing, the heroes move in. Uh, Freddie first finds a young type who he sees himself in. But this person, mini spoiler, is too much like Freddy and reveals herself to be utterly trustworthy. So Freddy is in danger of losing his bet before it really gets started. Due to a semi-betrayal by his first pick, or maybe scuppered due to like hot-headed impulse or just a lack of seeing the bigger picture and this new person was going for immediate gratification and sabotaging the long con. So Freddy suddenly finds himself in a pickle 
Uh, he gets out of it in a cool and clever way and funny way, um, but finds himself back at square one with almost his time up. Uh, meanwhile, Kane, or you know, Lawrence, has found a perfect student on the streets of Bombay and progress has already been made. Um, so the end of the montage basically is this. Martin has bad luck with his. Kane witnesses her, this, this little Indian, like 20-year-old, I'm saying. On the, so on the eve of the monthly deadline to find a candidate, quite by chance, and again, we're shown this is totally by chance, so it's not leading to a big twist later, Freddy sees a clever con at a taxi rank, and he knows he's found his girl. So like the first film, basically, the whole first half of this film is sort of separate and segmented, and the second half is something some slightly different. So, you know, at the beginning of the film, we establish the heroes and their respective states of unfulfillment, and then the bet, and then number two, each heads to their random locations to find a suitable sire, um, and this is and this section when they start teaching is of course comparable to the training that you know training Freddie to be classy section of the original as well as the whole rubric here little funny things happen and we really get to know these two chicks who I haven't written in any detail uh, sorry and then you know then training the the you know the, the new disciples and then therefore this so then we reach the halfway point of the film the second half of the film is the big bet and the big con the con is on uh, and everyone travels to switzerland a very plush and exclusive exclusive ski resort and of course it's very much like the exclusive beautiful place in the first film but this one instead of sand and surf and sea it's you know mountain and snow beautiful really really exclusive club real peace gloria type thing uh, so each of the four principals have their fake personas now both mentors playing back up to the sires who lead their respective cons so we have snow, snow and sun and pine cabins um skiing mishaps now one scene has freddie kind of like giving his lady like his his pick uh a uh, pep talk and he, you know they're standing up the mountain and they're wearing all the snowing gear and you just imagine the frame they're both facing each other you know profile um and then halfway through this big like and another thing you've got to always understand is be aware of your surroundings and you know steve martin is saying this and then he just starts sliding horizontally <laughs> just think backwards out of frame and she's like startled and doesn't say anything and he just keeps talking as he goes out of frame. Then we cut to a longer, wider shot. And he just notices and he tries to sort of topple himself over. But he just turns around. And then we have like his, you know, Freddie's POV as the skis go like over, you know, the side of this like ravine. <laughs> and then it's like a cartoon. He just slowly tilts forward like Coyote. Um, and then just goes, oh. And he just goes <laughs> down. And we have a comical skiing scene with Steve Martin. Like he slides <laughs> backwards out of frame. He slides down the slope immediately out of control, shooting down the side of the mountain with screaming pure Martin shtick through trees, impressive jumps and excessive tumbles. The ending, uh, he ends up crashing through the doors into the plush restaurant at the bottom of the slope. But now he sort of somehow has recovered it in pure slapstick genius. And he's now sliding, still on his skis, 
moving in a calm five miles per hour and covered in <laughs> shit, Freddie just slides through the room on this like polished wooden floor, greeting all the seated stuffy <laughs> folk. And he's like, hello, hello, you're pure Martin. And then he smoothly just goes into the seat opposite where Lawrence is sitting. <laughs> and, then, and he sort of plumps down and Freddie, you know, with bits of snow and pine needles and tree in his hair, is like, did you order me the pancakes? <laughs> and I'll say, you know, very broad, this is a bit Superman 3. It's a bit Spies Like Us, but if you're going to make this film and if you're going to set it in this location, if you don't have a scene with Steve Martin losing control of his skis and bombed down the side of a mountain, then you're, you're, you're making the wrong what film. What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, well, you're, you're, that what, what are we talking about? worth the price of admission alone. That was <laughs> That's, you know, it's in the trailer. Could it's I just say stuff. as well, like just the moment just before he goes over the, the mountain, I want that just as he's realising what's about to happen. Yeah. That, and that the is like the low point. up on his face. Yeah. And it's a proper, I feel like that's the planes, trains, Martin, of the you're going the wrong way when he's trying to tell <laughs> Dale. <like, laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very before wide he goes down. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he might even turn to her, like, but he can't quite get the word out in time that he's off the edge. Yes, yes, amazing. Um, so, so there you go. Um, so the two sides, of course, do have a lot more personality and are not as sidelined as I'm making out. They're played by two, you know, hot up-and-comers, meaning their careers are taking off. Um, Freddie calls his lady he just calls her vegas and she's smooth and she's american and she was hitting you know high-end casinos pretending to be a big hitter but you know she's in need of refinement uh whereas lawrence's pick is is street and this is anvi and you know she's from um, bombay she's kind of like you know the, the typical gutter rat childhood made good um very low-key very precise wry and very prone to always looking nervous but she never panics ever. And so Freddie, therefore, is siring the smooth one, and Lawrence is siring the rough, which is a nice twist on their respective personality. And by the way, they both come good. Both of these female characters, they have, uh, they have nice father relationships with Martin and Kane. One moment when early-ish Vegas does sort of come on to Freddy and he almost succumbs, but then he recognises that she's conning him and he recognises the con she's pulling. And so, you know, he pulls out in time to save the bet and, you know, to regain there, you know, it doesn't go over the line at all. You know, it's just very innocent, flirtatious and it's building. Like, wait a minute, it's the Hurricane's shamble. I invented this move, that sort of thing. <laughs> and they bond, in fact, over that. So you've got to trust me if you're going to get anywhere with this, you know, this sort of thing. So, so that's all right. As part of their cons, Freddie and his sire are playing a father-daughter couple, while Lawrence and Anvi are playing this academic um, professor. So he plays a professor in mine as well, Jimmy, and his student. Uh, they lean into the stereotype and have her playing this, like, a mathematics prodigy who's won a scholarship to this, like, Swiss prestigious university type thing. Freddie and Vegas are playing you know, this really super wealthy, stupid, you know, Vegas, uh, like the mega spoiled idiot daughter and the distracted businessman father who just pays for his daughter's happiness, allowing her to act accordingly and 
a lot of goodness to be mined from both Martin and Keynes' cons, their partnership, the relationships with their sires, the sires' relationship with them, the respective techniques used in the cons. All the while, of course, all four are trying to sabotage the other team's chances. Uh, there's a moment towards the end of Act Two where, again, we hear, you know, the Italian police are out in force. The spectre of Detective Inspector Rossi is still looming large and things are heating up. It's getting tricky to operate. Um, and, you know, the Marks are all members of this, like, you know, exclusive hotel. There's only like 10 people staying in this mega exclusive wealthy. Freddie has the chance to do the right thing um, towards the end. You know, the net, the net is closing in, perhaps, and Freddie has the chance to act selflessly and save everyone, and we are led to believe that this, you know, his arc will lead him to do the right thing, but he totally doesn't, and he sells out Lawrence and Anvi and immediately jeopardizes all of them, um, and is through a very selfish act. So the sires then, Anvi and Vegas, must team up putting their differences and competitive natures to one side and save the group. They clearly work very well together, in brackets, spin off. This is one scene, but very well done. You know, they, it's just for them and they're very good together and they save the day 100%. This ends up voiding the bet, however, all of this shenanigans and Freddie's behaviour in the first place. But the girls do save everyone in time to put their heads together for the grand end con and act three. The third act is time for the big end game. The four heroes therefore team up to take down several of the very high-end marks who they've been working separately, who they all share this hotel with. Uh, there are five or six distinctive characters, by the way, who've all been set up and established, of course, you know, super rich, stupid, nasty people. Uh, the very people you know, who brought them to the location in the first place. Uh, you know, from big business, one could be from the gun lobby, one could be big tobacco, you know, really go for it. The end heist involves a lot of money that they've all been, you know, these people are all conned into just like coughing up their wallets and shit. But of course, it's still, and you know, just a lot of stuff. And like, what have you got? Just any loose cash. It's the only way to save us from this big con we've done, you know, uh, to save the investment that they've all been sold on. So all four heroes are working together. They're all playing their characters. And finally, also uh, perhaps, you know, get a bit greedy, make a play uh, for the priceless art collection that's also, you know, there. As, but, you know, the idea was to, to leave that there's one sculpture that's mega. So maybe this causes a problem. It all ends in cross and double cross. And we're briefly led to believe that the sires were working together and conning Martin and Kane, just because I think the, the audience expectation is so high for something like that in a film like this. But this is really quick and it's quickly shown to be a double con to get out of some other clever plot device, um, namely perhaps to trick Headley into becoming uh, impartial in the bet because Freddie wants to show he can best her and Lawrence wants to invalidate their quote-unquote professional relationship due to his feelings for her. So they do this thing to sort of draw her out because they know she's around monitoring, but she's like keeping well out of it. And it does indeed bring Janet out from behind the scenes for the grand finale. So an aspect of the third act has been, you know, the bet is now apparently over with all four working together for the big payday. But as all the players, the cons, the Connors, the pawns, the knights, Arthur and Andre, they all seem to be wrapping it up. They've got the cash. 
but have decided not to be greedy and to let the artwork go. Lawrence uh, says, some things just aren't worth the risk. And just as they all appear to be home free, the hotel is stormed by the Italian police and all four heroes are caught and they're named and they're cuffed and they're exposed. And the Italian policeman, um, you know, like the captain comes up and he says, the detective Inspector Russell, he strikes again. And uh, Lawrence is like, oh yes. And where is this mysterious detective inspector? And the Italian says, she's been here all the time. <laughs> and Freddie says, she, and Janet steps forward. Italian accent, badge, gun, cuffs, all business. The squad of police all salute her. The second in command cops reports directly to her. She's called them all in. The bust is hers. Freddie is like, Jay, Janet, Jay, are you joking? And, and Janet says to Freddie, you always wanted to know what I was doing when I was away. Well, now you know, catching Amazing. people like you. Uh, so the super rich guests are all stunned. The foursome are taken away as well as all the loot, the money, as well as the jewels, the fine art, uh, the, the priceless sculpture. Uh, the four heroes are bundled into the back of a meat wagon and they're sped away. And Lawrence is, you know, everyone inside is going crazy and they're furious and they're lamenting. And Lawrence is the only one silent and he looks like he's had his heart broken. And Freddie is livid and screaming and the two girls are handling it with panic and fear and fury. And then there's like a, a lull in the van and all is lost and everyone's just staring into the abyss. And then Lawrence starts laughing and the others stare at him. And then there, that little slide, little peephole opens and the Italian police drivers scream back, you know, the little slide like, hey, are you shutting your mouth? And like he keeps laughing, pure Michael Caine, like <laughs> guffawing. So the truck like stops, and the back doors, you know, the doors open, and the back doors are flung open, and the two cops stand there glowering. And Janet steps forward, and she looks at Lawrence, you know, she's like, "You think this is funny?" Uh, but she breaks halfway through her line, and then Janet says to Lawrence in her American accent, "Oh, now come on, admit that, but a moment." Just for a moment, I had you. And then she starts to laugh and she throws the keys and he unlocks himself and Freddie and the girls are just staring, mouths agape. And she has, of course, all of the treasure. And Lawrence is like, I admit with great pleasure that yes, for a moment there, you had me, Detective Inspector. And then Big Kane guffaw. <laughs> so we learned the Jackal's Endgame was not just to get the money for the con, but the hot, but the bait, which was the art, was worth so much more. Uh, there is a detective, Inspector Rosso, but she he was never onto them. All the information about him always came from her. Um, and so, frankly, you know, she's like, someone like that is never going to come close to catching someone of our caliber. And Freddie's like, really, our caliber? Yes, Freddie, even you, our caliber. And she and Janet's like, here's hoping that if the detective inspector does hear that his name was used in a sting of this size, he will explode like a squashed lasagna. The day someone like him gets halfway close to catching the likes of us is the day we have no business doing what we do. And Freddie's like, and are we still doing this? Or are some of us still retiring? And Lawrence says, 
Retiring is for the old. I'm mature. And the five uh, make, you know, to split and head for a rendezvous because they're still on the side of this dirt path in the upper mountain. Um, so they, they, they're going to meet at the rendezvous in Paris. The two fake cops, who are now comically quarrelling and all nervous, leave with Andre and Arthur. Freddie and the girls fill up a tiny mini and screech away. And Lawrence and Janet are alone for a moment on the mountaintop. And they get into a very nice convertible. And Janet says, smile, Professor. It looks like you really do know me after all. And Lawrence says, only in all the ways that matter. And Janet starts the engine and says, and you're sure you're not ready for retirement quite yet, Lawrence? And Lawrence says, well, now, that all depends. Are we still in a professional relationship, Janet? And Janet, there's a beat, and she smiles and says, call me Amy. And with that, the car kicks up gravel and shoots away down the mountain road, Lawrence's laughter echoing all the way. And we have credits. And it's the end. And two taglines, not very good. Um, one, would they lie to you? Uh, and the That's other... Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, the other one is, higher stakes, bigger risks, may the best mouth win. Which I don't know if that sounds too sexual and dirty, but I, I don't know. That's that's what I came up with. <laughs> so, so there you go, Jimmy. Flippity jibs, Sheps. Jesus wept. Well, look, A, cane laughter was something we didn't touch on, but it's an amazing laugh today, right? Scoundrels, and you've nailed it and, and lent into it in a beautiful way. Um, man, you know, if ever I never, you know, I always knew, despite all my misgivings and regrets around Dirty Run Scoundrels, despite me being very excited about it and being all giggly about it and then realising I pulled myself onto a punch where I had nothing in the clip and I was, you know, mucking around with a masterpiece and I was never going to come up with something. Thank Frick for you, Sheppy, because holy moly, man, like I knew you'd deliver, but my God. There's so much to unpack there. I can't wait to do the edit on this already. Like, you know, I just can't wait to re-listen to that. Like, it was wonderful. Like, everything well, was wonderful, man. Perfect. That's very nice. A perfect bow. I'm... It was wonderful, mate. It was great. Great. And you new locations, I... new vibes. New, you know, you got it to the point where, you know, mine, the iconography would be almost identical, so you wouldn't know which one was which. It's almost like a TV show, like, continuing. With this, like, you could see a snapshot of Martin in the Alps, and you'd be like, Oh yeah, okay, cool. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. So man, I just just wonderbar top to bottom. Love that man. Amazing. Thanks, man. The thing is, of course, the last line of my sequel has Janet saying the line, and it's she says the last line of the first film. So when she says, in my mind, you know, call me Amy, and they drive off. The, the same music cue kicks That's in and they're bezing down the mountainside and it's that and you hear like you know Lawrence going that's a bit Sid James and the credits roll so that that's that was definitely on my mind like as well so I yeah so there you go so I all I see it all very happy very happy. Well, that's wicked. That so, makes me very happy. Thank you very much. I want to um, know what's next, Sheppy. I'm excited well, to know. So, Jimbo, look, <laughs> let me say this. Oh, God. I have been accused in the past of perhaps only 
making my decisions based on some sort of hidden hatred I have of you. I cite the Captain <laughs> out of space and the text message saying, seriously, Sheppy, do you hate me? What have I done to wrong you? What is this? <laughs> now, with that in mind, <laughs> yes. the film that I'm going to give now is one that you have not seen. Now, is the reason I'm giving this strongly motivated simply to force you to watch it? I don't know, Jimmy. Possibly. I don't know. Maybe. It's, it's, it's you know I have to have a haircut books. this week. You know I have to have a haircut this week. <laughs> <laughs> From the <top. laughs> Go on, uh, So, all right, Jimmy. It's not an 80s film, so I'm sticking to my run of like avoiding the 80s at the moment, which I'm quite proud of. Very early 90s. Watched it recently without any plan even crossing my mind. And this happens sometimes. That happened with Flight of the Navigator. I wasn't planning on it. I genuinely watched it. And then I was like, oh, that could possibly work with Shoulders of Giants. Same with this. It wasn't until the end of the film. I was like, do you know the film, Jimmy, is Hudson Hawk? Oh, wow. Yes. That's exciting. <laughs> exciting stuff. Yes. I'm fascinated to know your take on this film. I have should to have say. guessed that actually, because you'd sent me a text yeah. with a, a yeah. pic of it, didn't you? Well, yeah. okay. It must be out there on a streamer somewhere, right? You've got yes, to think. Yes, but by the way, isn't that an interesting argument generally around keeping your Blu-rays? Because you yeah. can't bloody guarantee Netflix is going to keep going with all your favourites like this. So, Well, that's, that's the problem. I've got so many DVDs. My computer keeps breaking. We have the projector and it works for that. But the, my computer, I keep thinking, my computer can't be broken. The fact that it actually has a DVD player proves that actually it's really, I got it in 2016 and it's so lucky because I think it was the last model ever made to have a <laughs> DVD player and it's like erratic. But fortunately I have really random DVDs in my flat from just like, and also I was recently at home and I got more random stuff. So yeah. But if my computer does break, I hope they can fix the DVD slot because otherwise I'm scuppered. Well Sheppy, I will definitely watch Bruce Willis and Daniello and all the rest mm. and come back to you with a with wait. a with a uh, debrief and a pitch for a I'm very excited, Jimmy. Very <laughs> Hudson excited. Hawk Jr. <laughs> or equivalent. Oh, huge. <laughs> now that I'm into egg. my monikers rather than my twos, you know, I think uh, that could be it's the way huge. to go. I like uh, it very much. Well, you get your talons into that. Um, and I great can't hawk. wait to well, see I mean, that's a good my... part. I didn't even beak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I know you got it. <laughs> All right, Jimmy. Let's. Uh, let's. That's. That's wonderful. How on earth do we end this? I was going to tell you that I have the perfect send off for this, but that would just be a lie. I would be conning you, Jimbo. See, that was clever, wasn't it? It was on brand, on point. S secrets, S Sheppy. I really should have seen it coming. <laughs> it's a twist. You know. Well, when you think about it, it's really kind of obvious. B Ben S Sheppy. S shit B band. It's clearly over. No, that doesn't work at all. No, no, no one could probably. I thought you were going to go but that's good. At the top. Well, that's rubbish. Sheppy, yeah. Well, I well I started on it and then it was like, but I'm not there, Sheppy, so it doesn't work at all. <laughs> S slipstream S shepherd. That doesn't work either. I think we're happy. <laughs> think about it. It's obvious. 